Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day. Grateful that we can be together. Grateful that we can be reminded of these glorious truths and promises through song, of all that God has done for us through, through Jesus. Well, this morning I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians there in the New Testament, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 as we continue our October series through the five solas, five solas that uh, emerged in the Protestant Reformation. We've looked at Scripture alone, week one. Last week we considered faith alone, and today we are going to be looking at the principle of grace alone. Salvation comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ by grace, not by works. We receive that through faith. I want to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to consider further your gift of grace. What salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone means for us. But Lord, not only for us, for the entire world. So Lord, as we consider this truth today, Lord, would you impress it within us and help us to be overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude as we contemplate the depths of your grace. And Lord, even for those who may be here today or watching that have yet to receive this grace, Lord, would you show them what they're missing and would you give grace to them today? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we live in a world of sharp contrast, don't we? Just yesterday, we saw that in the weather. One o'clock in the afternoon, I'm roasting at a softball game, enjoying summer, and by 6 p.m., the fall, the fall had arrived. And so we, we just see that even in, in yesterday's example. But you think about that, contrasts are all around us. We know what it means to radiate with happiness and yet experience gut-wrenching sorrow. 
We know what it means to be a winner and we know what it means to be a loser. Prosperity and suffering. Endless examples of contrasts. As we think about this concept of, concept of grace, it too is part of a contrast of sorts, especially when contrasted with how the world often functions and responds to salvation. Think about that. In the world, you need to prove yourself. You get what you deserve. It's the mentality that is often fostered. You think about it in examples like graduation, right? You can graduate if you achieve what is required of you. Getting that job, you can get the job if you are qualified. Buying a house, again, you have to prove your ability to afford. On and on, we got, everything we pretty much do in this world is based upon some kind of works system. And yet when we think about the concept of grace, it is so much different. Grace is something we receive. It's a gift of God. It is a demonstration of his kindness and favor. In fact, it can often be difficult to accept, even for us, a church named after grace. And often it can be hard to accept because the world has conditioned us to think contrary but it's absolutely foundational to our redemption. Brothers and sisters, with regards to salvation, how we can be right with God, grace is not just important, it is absolutely foundational. It is essential to understanding how God in his kindness and his grace brings redemption so that we can know him and be forgiven of our sins. Without grace, none of us would be following Jesus. Without grace, none of us would be here this morning. None of us would have hope. Our sins would not be forgiven. So grace is absolutely foundational. As one of the five principles that was recovered during the Reformation, grace alone Salvation by grace alone is a doctrine, a teaching that we must not only know and understand and appreciate, we must embrace it with open arms. As we think through this gift of grace this morning, I want us to look at Ephesians 2. And I want us to, to consider Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 from a consideration of grace God's grace given to us in Christ in order for us to be saved, to be right with God. And so as we think through that, I want us to consider four characteristics about grace from this text that should make us value it all the more. Four characteristics about grace from Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. First characteristic, first observation that we see concerning grace is this. Grace is for the undeserving. Brothers and sisters, for us to appreciate God's grace, we must understand who it's for. 
The very definition of grace is to show a kindness, a favor towards someone. With regards to salvation, it is divine favor extended to the undeserving. Last week we looked at Romans chapter three when we were thinking through faith alone. And as we considered that teaching from Romans, we understood that, that there's this great problem we all face, the fact that we are all sinners, all of us, no exemptions. All of us are sinners, all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And I think in order for us to value and appreciate grace, it's important that we camp out there a little longer and do a little bit more of a deep dive into the human condition this morning. Right here in Ephesians chapter two, Paul reminds the Ephesian church really of, of her story, of her testimony, as he goes back and considers and reminds them where God had brought them from. The first three verses you see very clearly that reminder that he's giving them. In verse one, He's writing to the church, these, these are Christians, the, the people receiving the letter to the Ephesians, these, these, are, these are believers, the church, and he's saying, listen, you Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul describes their condition before Christ as being dead, dead in trespasses and sins. This is who they were before Jesus. This is who we are, left to ourselves before we encounter Christ in a saving way, dead. We are not neutral, we are not merely sleeping, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Our condition, Paul uses this, this terminology of being dead in a metaphorical sense of, of being alienated from God. That's who we are. It's a spiritual description that we are not alive spiritually, that we are dead, and the reason, because, the reason is, is due to sin. Spiritually speaking, Paul is saying that before Christ, we are dead meaning we're entirely unable to do anything good on our own that would merit God's favor. Think about that, this, this reality can often be challenging to get our minds around. Even if, you, even if you've grown up in the church for a long time and you've, you've, you're familiar with this kind of language, it's still a, it can be a challenge to, to fathom this kind of description about human nature. Maybe some of you even struggle with that today. Especially in contrast to the messages that we often hear that, that you can do anything you can set your mind to, right? Kind of this American way. Well, you can't do anything you can set your mind to. Kids, I'm sorry if you've been told that. You just can't. Because if you could, then you could get salvation, right? The logic fails. Doesn't mean that you can't do well in life. There's a whole other argument there. But especially when we're surrounded with these messages and, and these things that we hear, we, 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 we struggle realizing that the depths of who we are spiritually before God. 
Yes, sure, you realize, you, you acknowledge, we, we mess up, we do foolish things, we have selfish tendencies, but dead? That seems like such a stark statement, such a, such a harsh reality. But that's exactly what the Bible describes us, how the Bible describes us before Christ. Left to ourselves, we are dead in sin. This condition of being dead is further qualified here as Paul goes on to describe the Ephesians as being dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The state of someone's spiritual condition is demonstrated, he says, by your walk, by your lifestyle, how you go about your day-to-day living. Before Jesus, the air you breathed, every aspect of your life is marked by sin doesn't mean you sin all the time, but everything about you is impacted by the fall. Everything that you do, your your motives, your thoughts, your words, your actions, everything about you is impacted by this fallenness, by this spiritual condition known as that that we're dead in sin, it's it's impacted. And so your walk reflects that reality. I think that's important to understand that, 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 be, that your spiritual condition of being dead in sin is reflected in how we carry about our lives, how we go about living, our lifestyle. It's not vice versa. We don't do sinful things to become dead. We are living out of a condition that is already dead. There's a huge difference. Paul goes on to describe why it is unbelievers walk in that kind of way. Remember, he's, he's reminding the church where they had come from, and so this, this language of verses one through three is true of every person that's ever lived, minus Jesus, simply reflecting upon where God had brought them from. I want you to notice several things here about these who walk according to the ways of the world, and that's the first thing that we see, that these are people who are influenced by the world. Remember he's saying you were dead, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The, the, the word world here is cosmos, which is not the physical world, but the world's system. It's what constitutes a belief system and values that are in direct opposition to God. So before coming to faith in Jesus, people are worldly in the sense that they are captivated and influenced and directed by the world's evil system. This is the world that we're born into. And its influence is all around this evil system that's characterized by characterized by unhealthy and ungodly social, cultural, economic, and political influences all around the air we breathe every day just launched into that at birth. The world gladly provides the script for us to live by. And that script has no room for God, no room for righteousness. This is who we are before Jesus, dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world. Number two, we see those who are dead in trespasses and sins are also those who are guided by the devil. 
The world's system has a ruler. Described here as a prince. Just follow Paul's logic here. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In John's gospel, if you were to go to the gospel of John, we see how the devil, Satan, is described as the ruler of this world. That's in John 12, verse 31. And this ruler is powerful. He's a spiritual being, but his influence is great. He is known as a great deceiver, and he is powerful in his impact. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this to them. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case. So those who are perishing, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, same people. Those who are perishing, he says, in their case, the God of this world, little g, the God of this world, same as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working now in the sons of disobedience. The God of this world, Paul says, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So friends, when we think about our condition before Christ, we are born into a world that heavily influences us against anything related to God. It's a world that is ruled by this prince, the, the, the God of this world, little g, that that actively works to keep unbelievers from seeing the truth about Jesus and the truth of who they are before a holy God. We're not born into a neutral world. Friends, I think that, 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 that idea that we're born neutral into a neutral world is prevalent today, even in the church. I think there's this idea that we, okay, we got time to kind of decide which team we're on. No, <laughs> you've been assigned because of your spiritual condition. We're born into a world that is active in its opposition against God and its ruler strategically works to keep us captive. But number three, we see those who are dead in sin, not only are they influenced by the world and, and, and led by this, this evil prince, they're also those who are controlled by the flesh. Notice Paul says in verse three, well, let me back up and just keep following here. He says, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he talks about the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The world is full of sons, sons and daughters of disobedience, led by an evil world, ruled by an evil prince, and these sons of disobedience that are being described here are those among which we all once lived. There are kindred. Before someone becomes a Christian, this is your reality. You live in a world that is opposed to God. You live in a world that is, that is captive, held captive by the evil one. And you live in a world where people simply exhibit their natural desires which are in opposition to God. 
And as such, you are by nature, that's, that's key, by nature, not by actions, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. Now, all of this is to say that apart from Jesus, we are in a bad way. Dead in sin, influenced by the world, following natural passions that the world only reinforces. And as such, we're accountable to God. So that's the bad spot that we're in. We're sinners by nature, and because we're, we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice, and everything around us encourages that. And there is no human way to pull yourself out of that and somehow make yourself right with God. Impossible. Chapter two, verses one through three are, are simply the impossibility stated of you being able to do something that would earn God's favor upon you. Thus, when we speak of God's grace, we need to understand that God's grace is given to those who are undeserving. Listen, God only saves sinners. That's, that's, that's what the world is full of. And when he saves, when he extends grace, he is extending grace to those who are living contrary to his revealed purposes in the world. He's extending grace to those who are influenced by the world, captive by the evil one, and by nature, showing through works of the flesh their children of wrath. Salvation by grace alone is not a thing that God does to meet you halfway. Salvation by grace alone is not a promise that if you will kind of clean yourself up a little bit and kind of meet God on an on a, on a even playing field, that then he will give you grace. No, when God acts to extend grace, he is extending grace to the ungodly, to the rebellious to those who are by nature children of wrath. The very ones deserving of his righteous condemnation are the very same ones that are recipients of his redeeming grace. Salvation by grace alone is absolutely vital. Often we hear that, that grace is unmerited favor and that's certainly true. We've not done anything. We've not We've not put ourselves in a, in a good enough position to somehow now deserve his kindness or his favor. So that's a true statement, but, but it goes further than that. Really, grace is contrary to merit. Despite any lack of goodness in us, God is giving us favor. So brothers and sisters, if you do not understand the depths of your human condition, you will never value and appreciate and rejoice and glory in the kindness of God's grace. Grace is for the undeserving. Number two, grace is solely God's work. Grace is solely God's work. We see that now in verses four through eight. After Paul paints this bleak picture 
of the human condition, he moves on with this beautiful transition statement in verse four. Right? He, he, he's, he's made the case. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're a, we're a human train wreck. And then verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The gospel can be summarized, the good news, the gospel means good news, the, the good news of God saving sinners can be summarized in the simple fact that you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, but God made you alive. But God is like a brilliant, this, this, these two words, but God is like a brilliant ray of hope shining into a dark and cloudy world of despair. where our hope is centered. Do you just see several further characteristics about this, this grace being God's work? Number, number one, it's, it's, it's a work that's motivated by loving mercy. Paul describes God's mercy as rich and his love as great. You see that there in verse four. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What is the motivating factor for God to extend grace to the undeserving, to those who are sinful and willfully in rebellion against him? What's the motivation? His mercy, his love. The thing that prompts God to give you salvation has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the fact that he is a God rich, overflowing with mercy, and a God who is filled with love. Friends, much of the world rejects that message in practice. I think we see it even in many churches. We, we can easily fall into the trap of, of thinking wrongly, thinking wrongly that, that church attendance, that religious activity of whatever you wanna come up with, or even in some traditions, the partaking of, of the sacraments, that through all of these kinds of external acts of participation, that through these things that we do, we, we are now going to find the favor of God if we do enough of them. But that's not the gospel. God's favor, God's grace is rooted in his loving mercy, period. And he demonstrates that through this work that is achieved by Christ, number two. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, there's the motive even when we were dead in trespasses, this is not a meet me halfway kind of thing. You were dead by nature, objects, children of wrath, deserving of judgment. But God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. 
compelled by his own mercy and compelled by his own love, he made us alive, he raised us up with Christ, he seated us in the heavenly places. These are three verbs in this passage that are all connected to God's activity. None of these are things we do. You don't make yourself alive. You don't seat yourself in the heavenly places with Christ. You don't raise yourself up with Christ. God does that to you and for you, motivated by his mercy. He's using language here, this making alive together, raising us up, seating us in the heavenly places. He's using resurrection language. Your spiritual reality is dead. But God's gift of grace is to raise you from the dead, to make you alive, spiritually speaking. And so he uses this language here of being resurrected, being made, being made alive, being raised up with Christ to describe our union with Jesus. In essence, what he's saying here is what is true of Jesus is true of the believer. We know that Jesus died and was raised, an act that was required for our redemption. But when we are recipients of grace, we are united with Christ by faith in his death and resurrection. Therefore, our conversion is described in this kind of language of being raised with Christ, seated in the heavenly places, made alive. God's grace is motivated by his love, by his mercy, but it's extended to sinners through the redemptive work of Jesus. It's accomplished by Jesus. Number three, it's displayed for eternity. Look at, look at verse six into seven. It's a long sentence here in verse four. God being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, notice he, he interrupts the flow of thought there. <laughs> By grace you've been saved, right? He's made us alive. This is grace coming to you. This is favor, this is kindness. God is lavishing upon you and raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places. So that, what's the purpose of all this? So that you can feel good about yourself? No. Look, verse seven tells us, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God extends his grace to sinners motivated by mercy and love accomplished through Jesus to redeem us, why? So that for all eternity, he can demonstrate that he is a God of grace. It's what the text says. God extends his grace in the present to show off his grace forever. So the grace that we receive now follows us into the age to come. To magnify the glory the kindness, the faithfulness of God. The ultimate purpose in saving sinners is so that God can be glorified and that he can display his grace for all to see forever and ever and ever. 
Listen, when, when, when we make our journey from this world to the age to come, to the world that awaits us, when all will be made new and, and the new heavens and the new earth are established, you're not going to forget about grace. You're gonna be proof that it exists. So this grace that we receive now is a grace that will be on display, full display for all of eternity. And it's the sole work of God. Grace is something God does. Number three, third characteristic about grace is that grace eliminates all boasting. After Paul says that this grace given to you is a grace that is to be displayed in the coming ages so that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Notice how his mercy, he's, he's talking about how his mercy is rich and now his grace is immeasurably rich that God does this to, to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Then Paul says there in that, that very familiar verse to us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, last week's sermon, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, Paul could have stopped right there and the point would have been crystal clear. He could have stopped the end of verse eight where you maybe probably see a comma, that could be a period and it would be true, equally true, but he doesn't. He puts a comma and he continues with another thought. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, comma, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. If there was something, friends, that we could do to merit, to earn, to deserve salvation, then there would be something for us to boast about, right? That applies in a lot of other different things, but, it, but if there's something we truly could do, like if I was just to say, hey, if you wanna become a Christian, I need you to do these three things and then like see what God does, right? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but just do these three things. And some of you did those three things and then if salvation came through those three things, then then you could look at your neighbor that didn't do those three things and say, look what I did. Apparently I was smarter than you because you had access to the same three things I did and, and you didn't do it. And so you could, you, could, you could sort of take claim for an aspect of your redemption, but that is just simply not how grace works. None of us contribute a thing to our salvation. And as such, there is nothing we can boast about in ourselves. Salvation by grace alone leads to humility, not boasting. And yet we are prone to pride, aren't we? We are a boastful people. We love to be seen, we love to be acknowledged, we love to be affirmed. And grace destroys any sense of self-confidence when it comes to salvation. 
again, if salvation would, were to come through law keeping or, or by keeping the sacraments or by any action we do, then, then you would have something to boast about perhaps. But since salvation is a gift of God's grace, boasting is erased from the, from the conversation. It, there's, no, there's, there's nothing for you to take credit for. By the way, that is one of the reasons that, that worship exists, that we can magnify the glory and greatness of God, but also so that we can thank him and rejoice in his kindness towards us. We're not worshiping ourselves. We're not celebrating what we did. And you know, I've heard people say before, I remember distinctly one time in a church, somebody giving a testimony saying, I just thank the Lord I had enough faith to believe. Well, good for you, the rest of us didn't. It's just not something that we should ever take credit for. Grace eliminates all of that. It magnifies God and his glory and, and his provision so that God is the one that is magnified and rejoiced in and glorified. Grace eliminates all boasting. And then number four, grace is transformative. And you see that in verse 10 and really through the rest of the book of Ephesians. When you understand the true nature of grace, you also understand that it's not just something that secures your future, it transforms your present. As recipients of grace, we are told in verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just as the creation of heaven and earth was accomplished without human involvement, Paul says all who are in Christ are God's creation. You are a new creation. And as a new creation, we are created for something. And, he, and here he says that, for good works. In fact, Paul goes on in the rest of this letter, especially in, verse, in chapters four through six to unpack what these good works look like. Not exhaustive, but he, but he gives you a good idea. He, he will show that a life redeemed by grace, what that looks like practically. So it's a reminder to us that grace not only saves the ungodly, but it transforms the ungodly to live righteously. Paul put it this way in his letter to Titus. In Titus chapter two, verse 11, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, that is grace, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Remember the, the passions, the worldly passions that Paul spoke about in Ephesians two, one and two and three? Grace, when it saves a person, trains that same person to renounce those passions, to put off the old man, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me put it this way. If you are not zealous 
for good works. If you are not zealous for the things of God, if, if you rarely think about pleasing God, you are likely not a Christian. You know nothing of grace. If it never dawns on you that your life is God's possession and you never think about how you can live a life that's pleasing to him and how you can obey him and how you can follow him and how you can live a life that is reflective of his character, then you likely have never experienced saving grace. Good works are important in the Christian life. Yes, we must keep them in their proper place. Good works are a fruit of grace, never the cause of it. Good works are evidence that someone has encountered grace, not something we do to seek God's grace. Another way we could put it is dead hearts can't produce fruit. You ever seen a dead tree, a dead apple tree produce apples? It just doesn't, it doesn't it's not realistic, it won't work. But when grace takes root in our lives over time, and it, this looks so different for, for all of us, When grace takes root in our lives, our desires change, our motives begin to change, our actions, our words, our hopes. Transformation begins to happen, and it's a glorious thing. It doesn't mean that sin is gone. It doesn't mean that the works of the flesh aren't still there tripping us up and, and causing problems, and doesn't mean that the temptations of the world go away, or doesn't mean that, that the evil one isn't actively trying to, to harm us. None of, that, that, none of those things go away on this side of heaven. But it does mean that when grace takes root, things change in us, and over time, we look more and more like Jesus. This grace trains us, it teaches us, it grows us, it sanctifies. God's grace saves us and God's grace sanctifies, it changes us. So listen, if you're here today or, or, or you're watching the live stream and, and you would admit that you're not a Christian, one, we're thrilled you're here. But, but if you're someone that would admit that you're not a believer, let me just say to you very clearly, especially if you sense this, this pull and tug in your heart that, that may be the Lord calling you to trust in Christ, that there's not a list of commands for you to do to become a Christian. There's just not. So if you're, you're here today and say, well, how can I be saved? How can I be right with, with God? How, I'm a sinner. How can I now be right with God who's perfect? Well, there's not a list of commands. In fact, if I were to give you a list of commands, which the Bible has plenty of, it would only show you just how bad off you really are. It would only magnify the sense of your separation against God. What we would say is that you simply, you simply need to understand that God in his grace has done everything needed by sending his son into the world to be your savior. As Jesus came, he lived a life of righteousness. He died on a cross in the place of sinners to take upon himself the judgment we deserved. And if you would simply look to him and trust in that, 
Trust in that work. Put your hope there. God will transform your life. Forgive your sins. You'll be adopted. Fellow Christian, grace is something that we often take for granted, isn't it? You know, you read Ephesians 2, and and if you've been a Christian very long, you've probably heard this passage, or if you've been a Christian a long time, you've definitely heard this passage, and you're probably so familiar with it that, that maybe there's this tendency to kind of lose a sense of awe at the grace of God. Grace is something that you have been given that you never deserved. Grace also gives you the freedom for you to obey Christ. It's not always easy. The world, the flesh, and the devil are still real. But in Christ, you've been released from that captivity. In Christ, grace has set you free from that bondage and given you a new power to live by. So as a Christian, when we think about the work of God's grace being transformative, That is just a reality that we need to walk in and enjoy every single day of our lives. You know, I said at the beginning, the message that we live in a world of contrast. And there could not be any greater contrast than the Christian faith compared to every other religion, faith, worldview that exists. There's just nothing like it. Every other system, every other religion, every other faith worldview that's not Christian will tell you, you must do something to appease something or someone. It is a works-based system ingrained into our, into our world. You, you pick the religion, you pick the worldview, whatever. Every other religion presents its own concept of salvation as being the benefit of something earned. Do this and maybe that God will be happy with you. The orientation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is radically different. The gospel, the good news, is based on a God who is eager to extend grace for those who are undeserving and for those who will receive it through faith so that their lives are transformed to serve God in faithfulness. Grace alone, salvation by grace alone is unlike anything else you will find in this world and it will lead you to a life you will never ever regret. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this morning that there are many times that we take this truth for granted as Christians. And Lord, we forget, oftentimes from, we, we forget that the condition we existed in before, before Jesus saved us. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for maybe growing apathetic or complacent concerning this glorious gift of your grace. 
My prayer, Lord, this morning for us believers would be that, that you would just remind us of what, what you've done. Lord, how far gone we truly were and for how gracious and kind you've been to us through Jesus. Lord, my prayer is that you would overwhelm us with a sense of humility and awe and Lord, that we would be joyful in our response to what you've given us through Christ. And Lord, that we would cling firmly to this grace, Lord, knowing that not only has it saved us, but it gives us the power in the present to, to follow you and to walk in your ways. God, help us, we pray. Father, it may be that some are here today and they've, they've never trusted in Christ. They've never put their hope in Jesus. Lord, it may be that you're speaking into their lives today to show them that not only are they sinners, not only are they dead in trespasses and sins, but Lord, they, they are without hope. God, would you show them this morning that there's nothing that they could do to earn their way to heaven. There's nothing that they could do to prove themselves good enough for you to redeem. But God, that everything needed, everything required has been accomplished through you sending your son, Father, to be the sacrifice we needed. And Lord, if there are those who are here today that do not know Jesus, would you work in them? And Lord, would you effectually awaken them that they may put their hope in Christ today and follow him. God, we thank you for this wonderful news, this wonderful gift of grace. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.